This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you so much, Andrew and Katie, both for, um, for hosting this with, through um, the Thomistic Institute. And um, I don't, do you guys mind if we just start with a prayer? I hope that's okay. Okay, all right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Heavenly Father, fill this room with your grace, your mercy, your presence, and your peace. Come, Lord Jesus, for you are the Lord of our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, for here you are reverenced. Here you are welcomed, and here you are loved. Come, Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, and give us new life in the ways and in the places of our hearts that we most need it. And we pause for a moment to mention in the silence of our hearts any special intentions or people we would like to pray for. And for all of these we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Cecilia, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. You must be an exceptional group of young people to want to hear about what an adulteress can teach us about happiness on a random Tuesday night. So thank you for being here. So I'd like to just start, I want to kind of like let you know, like you're like, okay, you're, don't worry if you have not read Anna Karenina. Okay, don't be scared about Leah Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. But um, that is ultimately what I'm going to talk about. But what I want to do is actually, this really is a talk about the moral imagination and the importance of the moral imagination. So what the talk is kind of divided into four sections, okay? So the first part of the talk, I'm gonna talk about literature and the project of literature. Like, why does literature even exist? And I even also put this in the contemporary idiom and think about, okay, why do, why do, why are there like little, why, why do we watch these little videos and why are there movies, right? Because this is all part of the, even songs to some extent, right? Participate in the project of literature, right? So this, this aspect of culture that's trying to do something for us. So I'm going to start talking about the project of literature. And then I'm going to talk about the classical period. Then I'm going to talk about the medieval period. And then I'm going to use the little prefaces I've made about the classical period and the medieval period to kind of bring, up, bring, bring us into talking about this piece of work from the modern period of literature, which is Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And what I hope you'll see is that Anna Karenina draws together the project of literature, what was begun in the classical period, and also what we see kind of in relief in the medieval period. You'll see it kind of all be synthesized in what I will share with you about Anna Karenina, which hopefully will encourage you to read it. Now, any outstanding, amazing, like unexpected people here have actually read Anna Karenina? It's okay, you didn't. We didn't. We expected most people to not have read it. <gasps> She's our overachiever. Okay, we're going to count on you. So feel free to bring up a question, but no pressure. Okay? All right. So, okay. So we're going to start with that first part, the project of literature. So what's the project of literature in Western civilization? Again, think about movies, little videos people make. Would you say that these, this literature, these movies, these videos, are they an artifact of culture? Are they a product of culture? Or are they a driving force that shapes 
culture? Are they an artifact of culture? A product of culture? Or are they a driving force that shapes culture? Okay, we can come back to that question. But I think you're gonna realize it's a little bit of both, right? That it's both a product of the culture and then it's also gonna be a driving force of culture. But think about this word culture, culture. At the root of the word culture is this beautiful word cultus in Latin. Okay, so not, don't think of creepy cult, okay? Like creepy, like weird doing things with cults. Okay, don't think about that. <laughs> but cultus actually means reverence, worship. So cult deals with what we worship, what we value, what we hold dear. And that's why that word cultivate is such a beautiful word. Cultivate, right? Augustine's Confessions, it's all about what do we cultivate in the field of our hearts, right? Do we cultivate wheat and flowers? In other words, goodness, compassion, tenderness, generosity. Do we give nourishment and beauty to others because of what's cultivated in our hearts? Or do we cultivate in our hearts Weeds and spiny, thorny things, right? So like gossip, envy, lust, selfishness, greed. And then what do we give to others? Pain and ugliness, right? And I'm not saying we do this intentionally, right? Because sometimes it's woundedness that causes us to cultivate these spiny, thorny things. So what does all truly great literature try to do? All truly great literature seeks to answer the question, what does it mean to be human, right? Think about that. Isn't that what we're all trying to grapple with? What does it mean to be human? And so the best of literature answers for us the perennial questions that were, that were posed by Plato. Remember what Plato, he asked these questions. What does it mean to be noble? What does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be honorable? What does it mean to be good? So if we look at Aristotle and his rhetoric and his poetics, and we also look at Cicero as a rhetorician and his work on rhetoric, he, they would both tell us that rhetoric, but also the rhetorician, and now also for us, great literature, has three aims. What are those three aims? The first is to instruct, right? Because we need to know the truth, right? We're, we're seeking for this ideal. And so logos, this is that element called logos, right? The reason, the philosophy behind the argument. So to instruct is the first aim. The second aim, to delight, right? Because, you know, you're going to get bored, right? If you, have any, if you have a boring teacher that never tell any jokes and just talk in a monotone voice, right? There's no, where's the spirit? You need the character. You need the ethics behind it, right? So there's this, this ethos is the second element, and it seeks to delight the listener, the reader. Okay, logos, ethos, to instruct, to delight. The third, the third aim of great literature is to move or to inspire, right? And this is pathos, because that's what we want, right? We, we, we have to be encouraged, we have to be inspired, right? The martyrs, what inspired the martyrs? What inspired heroes to die in war? Those are the types of things we have to think about. And what I'd like for you to see is that these three elements, logos, ethos, and pathos, are in great literature all employed to one end. And what is that one end? The shaping of the moral imagination. 
the shaping of the moral imagination. Okay, so think about this. I mean, probably most of you in this room, your vocation is going to be marriage, right? And you're going to have children. And you know what? You have this great responsibility to teach your children what to love and what to hate, right? What is good and what is evil. So Thomas tells us that, so there's this Thomistic principle, basically, that in order to act, you have to first imagine yourself acting, right? And the outcome of the act. So I think we do this all the time, right? You're planning a secret surprise birthday party for someone that you love, right? And what do you do? You start to think about it. Okay, okay, what am I going to do? Can I do it this way? No, I can't do it that way. Maybe if there's a bunch of you, you get together. Like, we can't do it that way because, oh, we can do it like this. Right? So you, you, got, you kind of imagine the whole thing first, and then you play it out, right? And so each one of us are always asking the question, what ought I to do? What ought I to desire? And so before we can become noble, just, honorable, good, heroic, what do we need? We need characters that present to our imagination exactly how to do this. We need to be able to see characters in this literary cosmos who act with nobility, with justice, with honor, with purity, with goodness, with heroism. So, um, okay, think about this. Uh, have, have any of you, like, when you were children, ever heard of these books by Laura Ingalls Wilder called Little House on the Prairie? Okay, yes, great. Okay, so I'm going to move away from the microphone for a second. So, Little House on the Prairie, what do you see in Little House on the Prairie? You actually see, does anyone know what that little house is? It's a house built on love and self-sacrifice. Have you ever thought about that? Like, have you loved those books? It, why? It's because it's a house built on love and self-sacrifice. Okay, let me talk about this for a little bit. Um, I'm just going to scoot this back so I don't creep out people in the first row. Okay, so um, what happens in this? Okay, so like, this is so fun. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but there's this one time where, um, where Ma, she's bundling Charles up because Charles is going to go into town, right? But his coat is all raggedy, right? But she's like bundling him up, bundling him up, putting on his scarf, you know, because... You're always warmer. I don't know if you noticed this. Remember when you were a kid and you're, wait, we're in North Carolina. It's not too cold down here. Okay, well, imagine <laughs> if you were in Minnesota. If somebody, bundle, somebody else bundles you up, you're always going to be warmer because they tuck a little bit of love in there, right? So here's Caroline. She's, she's bundling Charles up, right? Got his scarf and his earmuffs and all this kind of stuff. And she's bundling him up and she says, oh, Charles, I wish you had a new coat, right? And he grabs her and he kisses her and he says, Caroline, I wish you had diamonds. <laughs> right? So there's something, there's something beautiful charming here. We see that they're a poor family, right? But they're rich in so many other ways, right? And one of the things I really like, one of the, I don't know if you remember this story, but one, okay, so remember, poor Charles. I'm sure he wanted boys, right? But he just got one princess after the other, was really happy with them, right? And he, you know, Caroline, of course, is his queen. So um, he had to work really hard, and sometimes he had to travel far away. And then he'd come back, right? And then he'd bring the money back or whatever, okay? So and then all the girls would be counting, right? They'd be counting how many days before Pa comes back. So I don't know. Remember, there was this one time where he, he comes back, and they're like, Pa, you're finally home. And so they cooked a special dinner, and they celebrated. And then the next thing they're going to do now, just practically speaking, is that they have to go into town, okay? So Pa calls Mary over, and he looks at her shoes, and her shoes are getting too tight. So he's like, Mary, you need to give those shoes to Laura. We're going to buy new shoes for you in town. 
so excited, right? Then Laurel Hanter's down, so forget, she's going to save those for Carrie, who's much smaller. So they do this, and they talk about, and then Pa says, and Ma, you need to get a new dress. Charles, you need to get a new coat, right, of course. And then they go on and talk about the food they're going to get, right? Okay, so they, they go into town, and it's like a big flurry, right? So they go into the different shops, and they buy all this stuff, and then they're all excited and happy because they got all this stuff, and they got candy for the girls, and then they come home, and then they start, they go out to the table, and they start putting all the stuff out on the table, right? And then Charles looks, Charles looks at Caroline, and he says, Caroline, you didn't get material for a dress for yourself. Right? All they got was material for the girls' dresses. And then Caroline looks at Charles and says, you didn't get a new coat, right? And what you end up seeing, like the girls, and Laura, who's writing this, she realized it, right? That her parents, all that they bought was for them, right? They didn't buy anything for themselves, right? So this stuck with her, right? This impressed itself on her moral imagination. And then there was another time. You know, so Pa's got these boots, and they're all ratty. They've been mended 20 million different times, right? And so Pa has, they have three extra dollars left over. This is another time, okay? They have three extra dollars left over. So the girls, Ma, Mary, and Laura, they all vote, Pa, you need new boots more than we need anything else. So they send him into town to go buy new boots, right? So he goes into town, right? You know what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, he goes into town. He comes back. They're expecting to see his new boots. He's got the same ratty old boots. Pa, where are your new boots? Well, when I went to when I went into town, you wouldn't guess who I met. Pastor Alden. He's trying to raise money for a new bell for the church because the church doesn't have a bell, and every church needs a bell. And he said all he needed was three dollars. <laughs> right? So isn't that awesome? You get the sense immediately that God, right? God is the most important. God is more important than my boots, right? And that's Pa saying that. Okay. But my absolute favorite is from On the Banks of Plum Creek. Okay, I don't know if you remember On the Banks of Plum Creek, but they, they're living in a dug-out house, which sounds really cool, right? So there's like a mountain or like no, a hill. So it's a little mountain hill kind of thing. And the house is literally dug out, and they live in this little... So Laura is like super excited. Like, this is such a cool house, right? And there's like a little loft. Okay, so there's like a little ladder, so they get it, so it's like the, just one room, this is the kitchen, and then there's a living area, and then there's like where Ma and Pa sleep, and then there's like a little loft up there where Mary and Laura sleep, okay? And this is on the banks of Plum Creek. They've never lived close to a creek, so the creek is like super exciting, okay? So Pa takes them, they, after they move in and do all the stuff, they're all finished, they're celebrating, so Pa takes everybody to the creek for a picnic and to swim in the water, okay? So they go to the creek. And they're swimming, 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 they're soaked, they're having all this fun. And like Laura's like, this is so awesome. Okay, so then they go back home and they all, all have fun. Okay, so then Polly's down a rule. All right, girls, you may never go to the creek by yourself, right? Because it's dangerous. You can only go when me and Ma take you. Okay? So you know, Mary, it does obedience is not disobedience is not even an option in her mind, right? But Laura is a little bit more mischievous, okay? So Laura one day is like, you know, she's playing, 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 and she's getting really, she keeps playing so far from the house, she gets really, really close to the creek. And so she wants to go to the creek. So she's on her way to go to the creek, but there is this weird creature in the way, okay? So she gets a stick, she pokes the creature, the creature kind of hisses at her, creeps her out, so she's like, she can't go to the creek, okay? So she goes back home. So they're having dinner in the dugout house, okay? 
And they're sitting there having dinner, and they're talking and talking. And Laura says, I ran across this animal. Da -da 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 -da. They talk about it. Oh, sounds like a badger. Mom says, yep, sounds like a badger. Oh, okay. Okay. And then they, they finish eating dinner. They clean up the dishes, right? And then Ma and Pa go, and they tuck Laura and Mary into bed. They say their prayers. They tuck them in. And then they come back down the ladder. And then, um, then Ma and Pa sit down. And they're still like talking, but they're still sitting at the table and they're talking, okay? And Laura, meanwhile, is up there. She's tucked in and she's thinking, right? She hears them talking. She's thinking about what she was going to do that day. She can't go to bed. So she gets out of bed and she climbs down the ladder and she, she goes to her dad and she confesses, Pa. I was going to go to the creek today, okay? Now, these are the most beautiful lines that I read in all of, Lingle, all of Laura Ingalls Wilder. She's talking about this moment, okay, and it's dark. She can't, like, the sun is going down. She can't see her father's face anymore. But you know what Laura writes about this moment? It says she wrote, and Laura leaned on Pa's knee. Right? She's leaning on his knee, waiting for her punishment. And Laura leaned on Pa's knee, and she could feel how strong and how kind he was. Isn't that gorgeous? She could feel how strong and how kind he was. Right? This is like an insight into God the Father. That strength, right, omnipotence and mercy are inextricably bound together, right? Isn't this a beautiful experience? that you want for your children, right? That every, that every parent wants for their child. And that it's an experience that you mourn if you didn't have it. So think about how these books, right? Like think about that, how this shapes the moral imagination of a child, right? This is Laura's conscience at work, right? When she realized I should go and I should get a punishment for intending to go to the creek even though I didn't actually go to the creek. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so this is what I want to talk about when I talk about the project of literature in, in, in general, the shaping of the moral imagination. Okay, so now what I want to do is move into the classical period. And before I do that completely, um, I have to mention my gratitude and indebtedness to the work of Louise Callan. So Louise Callan is actually the founding visionary of the core curriculum at the University of Dallas, which is my alma mater. I also had the great gift of being able to teach there for a few years um, in the recent past. And I really am heavily dependent upon her work for what I'm about to share with you. Okay, so now we're looking at the classical period, but I want to look only at one particular sliver of the classical period, obviously, because we can't exhaust the entire classical period in an hour. So, What's the one particular sliver I want to look at? The conception of the feminine in the classical period. Because if you think about it, you're going to see this echoed right through the, middle, through the medieval period and into the modern. And in fact, this, this conception of the feminine still shapes our way of thinking about the feminine today in the Western world. And I want to propose that there are some genuine and profound insights that we should recover here. So the first is this, is that there is something in the poetic universe symbolized by the feminine. Some other law, some grace, right? Because if you think about woman, what does she do in the classical period? 
all the figures of woman, there's this, this pointing to a law beyond, right? A grace beyond. Beyond what? Well, beyond the masculine. Because what is the masculine associated with? The masculine is associated with, with law, with logic, with rationality, right? Strict rationality, right? Because that's what, that's what the masculine mind does. It orders the polis, right? And that's perfectly good and needed and reasonable. And so this is what's so fascinating about the feminine, that it points to something supernatural, something above the law, something beyond the law, a kind of grace. Okay. Think about Helen of Troy, right? She has this dignity, that this beauty, that causes the, a fearful 10-year war in the fall of a city. Think about Dido. Think about Eve, right? They represent this. They're sacred figures, right? Almost unto themselves. And if you think about this, there's also this aspect of woman that she's captivating, right? There's something about her beauty, something about her mystery, the whole of her, that, you know, when men, when, when, meet, when, when certain men meet particular women, right, they become weak in the knees, they become enthralled, they become obsessed, ready to give all for this woman, to win her, right? So, in classical literature, this idea of the feminine, what else is it tied up with? Knowledge. Did you notice that? In classical literature, women are tied up with knowledge. Think of Eve and the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pandora, right? The keeper of the box. Athena, do you remember Athena? She was the goddess of wisdom and the teacher of heroes. The goddess of wisdom and the teacher of heroes. So these are feminine tasks. Education, right? Educare. E means out. Ducare means to lead, right? That women lead children out. Out of what? Out of ignorance, right? Out of their inherent barbarian tendencies, right? No hitting. Okay, no, use your fork, right? Okay, so right, education, right? So this, so this idea, but it's more than that, right? So, so yes, there's this enculturation, right, of young and of the young into the community, right? You have to take a shower, otherwise you'll be stinky, and no one will want to talk to you, right? So this enculturating of the young into the community, but also the bestowing of wisdom, the inspiration of hearts into the truth, right? So it's woman who tells the story of the heroes, but dad also sometimes will tell the story of the heroes. And as dad is telling the story of the heroes, mom will be like, wow, right? And then when they see, when the son sees how mom is reacting, he pays attention, right? So I think there's something here, that women are entrusted with wisdom. So it is the beautiful that communicates the true, right? Women are entrusted with wisdom because women who are beautiful communicates, communicate the truth, right? This is why Dostoevsky will say, um, beauty will save the world, right? Because true beauty draws us to the truth, okay? In the realm of love, what do we find in the classical period? In the realm of love, we find that women are connected to the agapic. Okay, so agape, which is that, that unconditional giving of love, right? That's, we, we speak of that as divine love, right? So women are connected to agape, right? So she, the woman is the one who receives the man, and she gives him love, 
Right? So this is what woman does, agapic love. Okay? Whereas man is connected to erotic love, right? Eros. So not don't don't think in the sense necessarily just of lust, okay, but erotic in its original sense, this idea of the questing after love, right? That that man is the one who is questing for knowledge, questing for wisdom, questing for love. And woman is the one who gives it to him, right? She's the one who receives him. Okay, so what do we see then within that paradigm happening? Well, within if that's the paradigm that's set, right? Man is questing for love, woman is giving and receiving love. Sorry, woman is giving love and receiving man. Within that paradigm, what do we see the classical authors do? I don't know if you're familiar with, um, with the Oresteia, right? So this is Aeschylus's Oresteia. So he writes about um, Orestes and Electra. What does he present? He presents a woman who is in the erotic mode. Uh-oh. This means she's in trouble. Does that make sense? A woman should be in the agapic mode. She should be receiving, giving, not questing. So what we find in classic literature is that whenever there's a woman questing for love, or questing in general, she's going to be in trouble. Okay, so the first one in, or in the Orsaya, what do we find? We find Clytemnestra. So Clytemnestra is actually having an adulterous affair with Agisthos, and together they plot and commit the murder of her husband Agamemnon, and then therefore Orestes, Orestes and Electra have to avenge their father's death. So that's the whole of the Oresteia, right? And then who's another famous woman? Um, do you remember um, this woman? Oh yeah, Potiphar's wife, okay? So she's kind of creepy, right? We read, so this is like the same ancient period, right? Potiphar's wife, so Joseph has gotta be like 10, 15 years younger than her, and she's hitting on him, right? She's a married woman, and she's hitting on him, right? So there's, we have the same kind of idea in, um, in classical literature. You see another figure like that. I think it could be um, Hippolyta, okay? And then you have the creepiest of all, Medea. Do you remember Medea? She takes her sons and she chops them up, cooks them, and serves them to her husband, like in revenge, right? So women who are in this questing mode, right? They, they, they're these horrific, terrible figures. Okay, so that's the classical period. Now, I want to talk about the medieval period now, just a, a little, again, a little sliver of the medieval period. And what do I want to say about the medieval period? Well, I want to talk about a particular book called Love in the Western World by Denis de Rougemont. And he is, he's working again out of the classical paradigm, and he's taking, he's looking at medieval literature and reflecting on it in light of the classical paradigm, okay? So what does he say, Denis de Rougemont, in his book, Love in the Western World? He says, he says, medieval romances, they went astray. How? In their exaltation or their glorification of passion. Okay, what does he mean by this? So just to make a little a distinction here. What's, there's a distinction between sensuality and passion, okay? So sensuality is, is normal. It's of the body, right? Like, you like to be held, you like to be touched, right? That's good, that's healthy, that's normal. So it's a part of genuine love. But our sensuality also needs purification, right? There has to be a selflessness. 
And you know, the most beautiful characterization I've ever heard of, um, of a pure Christian ideal of love is that, is that in a married, uh, with a married couple, right, their sexual love should be characterized by modesty and reverence. Isn't that beautiful? Modesty and reverence. So that's a purified sensuality, okay? So nothing wrong with sensuality. Sensuality is different from passion, okay? And this is what actually is, is incredibly dangerous and destructive, passion. So not in the sense of lust, okay? But lust, the gratification of lust is definitely a part of passion. But as Denis de Rougemont speaks of passion, what is it? Being in love with being in love, okay? Being in love with being in love. Okay, I want you guys to just think for a second about popular music out there, okay? Popular music that everybody is listening to. So say right here, I'm showing you all the popular music that's out there. Come on in. Thanks for coming. Oh, it's Sarah. Thanks for coming. Okay, we're talking about popular music that everyone is listening to. Say so this is all the popular music that everyone's listening to. Can you guys tell me what percentage of popular music that everyone listens to is about falling in love and being in love? Give me a percentage. 100%. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> they held up their fingers and made 100%, right? So, yeah, it's like pretty high, right? It's like 90%. It's pretty high, okay? Okay, what percentage of music is about suffering, self-sacrifice, the difficulty of being faithful, but how rewarding it is when you actually are faithful and you make it through the... Any music about that? Very, 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 very little, right? But there is some. We actually think it's really cool, right? So, but it, it, it's kind of crazy, right? So notice this, that even in the medievals, there was this problem of being in love with being in love. So what does he, what is it, what does he call it? Denis de Rougemont calls this the dream of being a god unto oneself. The dream of being a god unto oneself. And what does he equate it with? Seeking death. Have you ever thought of that? You know, you thought you were just being super innocent, right? Being in love with being in love. But he says, no. You're actually seeking death. And hopefully we can unpack why he calls this seeking death. Okay. Because basically what's happening is that it's a sacralization, a making sacred of the profane. And it's a profanation of the sacred. It's to make profane what is sacred. Does that make sense? It's the inversion of the order, which is the diabolical characteristic, right? Think about that. If you're wondering if anything is diabolical, if it takes the natural order and it flips it, it's diabolical, okay? So we are made to live in community, right? It is not good for man to be alone, right? We're made in the image of a Trinitarian God. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to isolate us. Okay, does that make sense? So that, again, that's that inversion. So you see, you're going to see this happen in, in everything the devil does. Okay, so one of the best homilies I ever had was actually about this very thing. I ever heard was about this very thing. It was given to us by Father John Rock, who is um, who was um, a great. He was a great honor for us to have him in, at in, at Saint Cecilia's as our chaplain. He was our chaplain for a number of years, and he worked side by side with Joseph Ratzinger in the CDF for a number of years, okay? His homilies were out of this world. But one of my favorite homilies that he ever gave was this. He said, the love of Tristan and Isolde, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, the love of Romeo and Juliet says to the world, be damned. 
Isn't that great? Okay, think about that. The love of La the love of Tristan and Isolde, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, the love of Romeo and Juliet, says to the world, "Be damned." Okay, what does that mean? To say to the world, "Be damned," is to say, "Look, I don't care about you. I only care about me." Okay. Now, the problem with Romeo and Juliet, which most of us have read, is that we read it when we were in seventh grade. We don't know what the heck it was about. We just knew there was going to be a quiz, and we needed to get an A. Okay. So, this is the whole. This is what's so sad, right? Because Romeo and Juliet, as Shakespeare wrote it, is great literature. But the problem is, is if our teachers also didn't understand it, we probably ended up getting almost nothing out of it, except for thinking, oh, that's so sweet, oh, it's so sad, right? It was, they had such a beautiful, no, they did not have a beautiful love. This is the point Shakespeare's trying to make. Okay, so there's a paper out there. I'm still trying to find it. I know it's out there. It's, or I should write it. There should be a paper out there. <laughs> On the number of times the word to, T-O-O, -O, appears in Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so having a limited amount of time, I had to look it up on Sporkle. I don't even know what Sporkle is. I hope Sporkle is okay. So Sporkle tells us it appears 57 times. Okay, because this is part of his point. There's something extreme, there's something excessive in the love of Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so I'm going to read to you what Romeo says. This is just one of the quotes, okay? Is love a tender thing? It is too rough, too rude, too boisterous, and it pricks like a thorn. Okay, well, he, this is not really what love is, right? Remember remember that party? Romeo's going to the party. When he gets to the party, this is the party that he's going to meet Juliet at. He's going to fall in love with Juliet at this party. Do you remember why Romeo went to this party? He was upset Because Rosalind was there, right? He, wanted, he was in love with Ro He's in love with Rosalind, and then all of a sudden now he's in love with Juliet. This is the problem. This is extreme. This is not real love. What does Juliet say? Juliet says, oh, it is, right, she's talking about the love between her and Romeo. Because Romeo is coming to, you know, give all those soliloquies to her. I mean, not, not soliloquies, I forgot what they're called. He's going to, like, say all this great stuff to her when she's on the, you know, on the balcony, right? What does she say? Juliet says, this is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like lightning. They're onto something. Okay. <laughs> then you've got the wise man. What does the wise man say? Oh, this is great, right? Great, great literary people do this. So um, Dostoevsky does this in um, The Brothers Karamazov. There's um, the, the abbot Zosima, right? He's the wise man. So in the Romeo and Juliet, who's the wise man? Friar Lawrence. What does Friar Lawrence say? When does he use the word to? Here's what he says. These, this is after they, I think they are about either both to die or they've already both died. These violent delights have violent ends and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which as they kiss, consume. The sweetest honey is loathsome in his own deliciousness, and in the taste confound the appetite. Therefore, love moderately, long love doth so. Too swift arrives as tardy as too slow. Right? So basically what Shakespeare's trying to tell us is there's something wrong with the love of Romeo and Juliet. Right? It says to the world, be damned. Why? They don't care about their families. That Their families have had this feud for a long time. Right? They're just going to do it anyway. They're going to fly in the face of, of what's been happening. Um, now, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere. Okay? I want to talk about the love of Lancelot and Guinevere. And this is interesting. Okay? Denis de Rougemont speaks about this. And so does Shakespeare, okay? But so does, uh, so does uh, Joseph Pierce. Okay? He's a big commentator, and you probably maybe read him when you were younger. But... He has this, I, I like to be puts it so simply, right? That there's good literature. 
Good literature is well-executed literature, okay? So there's good, good literature. So good literature helps you, it cultivates your affection for what's good, for what's noble, for what's honorable, okay? So there's good, good literature. Well-executed, and it cultivates your affections for what's good. But then there's good, bad literature, right? Which is well-executed, but it cultivates your love for what's evil and for what's wicked, right? It incites your passions in a bad way. Like you read it and like you want to go sin, right? That's be good, bad literature. Well executed, but bad, okay? Then over here, there's bad, good literature, right? <laughs> Poorly executed, but it's got good morals, right? And then there's bad, bad literature, right? Okay, but these are going to die away, okay? So what Denis de Rougeban is concerned with is the good, bad literature. And this is what he's saying about some of these chivalric romances, right? Where, where Lancelot and Guinevere become, like, interesting, right? Okay, remember, if you don't remember, remember, Guinevere is married to King Arthur, okay? So when she has this affair with Lancelot, she is committing adultery. So when there are Arthurian romances that make Guinevere look like a heroine and Lancelot look like a hero... This is good, bad literature, okay? Now, this is what's so cool. See, you gotta love America. I love America, even though I'm Chinese, okay? So, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. So, um, in 1960, Lowe, Lerner and Lowe wrote a musical called Camelot. And it's good, good literature, okay? Because they have Julie Andrews. You guys know Julie Andrews? Mm -hmm. Good job, okay. So, she's playing Guinevere. And they write this beautiful song. You can look it up. It's called I Loved You Once in Silence, right? So, so Juliet is, is singing about her love for Lancelot, right? I loved you once in silence, right? And misery was all I knew, all the while not knowing you loved me too, right? So she goes. And then one day they, they flung wide their prison doors and every word of love was spoken. And you know what the refrain is? And now there's twice as much grief Twice the strain for us, twice the despair, twice the pain for us, as we had known before. Isn't that amazing? Right, because it's basically saying, look, adultery doesn't pay. Because what happens at the end of the American version of Camelot, which is actually a takeoff of T.H. White's version of, of um, Once in Future King, which is actually really beautiful. I'd like to read it next. Um, because you know what happens is they have an affair, and then... King Arthur, of course, has to get vengeance, and so Lancelot and Guinevere are separated. Guinevere enters the convent, and then Lancelot has to spend the rest of his life in penance, okay? And how does this song end? This is so cool. And after all that has been said, right, they've all exchanged all of their words of love in this adulterous relationship. And after all had been said, here we are, my love, silent once more, and not far, my love, from where we've been before. Right, so... This is, I think this is a great tribute to the, the American sense of the moral imagination, right? And what it shaped, right? Married couples went to watch this movie, right? That's kind of, I mean, watch this musical, right? It's kind of amazing. Okay, so, um, now, this is, so what am I saying here? Let's go back to what Denis de Rougemont is doing. He's trying to tell us that this, this bad literature, right, why is it so dangerous? This good, bad literature. Why is it so dangerous? Why is it so damaging? Well, because what it encourages is an escape 
from reality. An escape from reality. Okay, I, I hate to... Okay, no offense. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, okay? But the Disney Little Mermaid is good, bad literature, okay? Oh, good, you're, you're more smart people in this room, okay? I mean, there might be some really sweet and beautiful elements. Because, you know, it actually twists the original Little Mermaid, which I encourage everyone to read the Jean Herholtz translation of the original Little Mermaid. Because what is that, what does the Disney Little Mermaid say? The Disney Little Mermaid tells every little girl, all your dreams are going to come true. It's not true, right? You are doing violence to your child by setting them up to make them think every single dream they have is going to come true. You know what happens in the real Little Mermaid? I'm not going to tell. I want to ruin it for you. I'm not going to ruin it for you because it's so awesome to read it, okay? The real Little Mermaid, she has to go to the sea witch, who is very, very clearly in the, in the original story an image of the devil, right? She sees another dead Little Mermaid on her way to go make the deal with the witch. And you know that when the witch gives her the potion she's supposed to drink, she tells her when you drink it, it's going to feel like knives, right? Like a knife going down your fin. And every step you take will be like walking on knives. Okay, that's what happens in the real story. And if she doesn't get the prince to fall in love with her and marry her before the priest, which is so interesting, right? The idea of the priest marrying you, you this man vowing his love to you in front of the priest. If he doesn't do that within a year, you will turn into sea foam. That's what happens in the real Little Mermaid, okay? And what does it tell little girls? You shouldn't try to become what you are not, right? And that, that saves you a whole lot of heartbreak. It saves you a whole lot of energy, right? Like the, this little, this cute little human boy, he is not worth it. She has these five beautiful sisters. You're, oh my goodness, her, you're, you, if you read it, you'll see how beautiful her five sisters are, okay? So anyway, so that's what really is going to teach us. Okay, so look what's happening here. This rejection of reality. The rejection of relationship. Because what is reality? Reality is the relationships into which we are born. Reality is the relationships to which we bind ourselves, right? By marriage, by vow. And so what's happening in this good, bad literature is that we find characters who choose above all else my dream world. And so what do they reject? They reject marriage. They reject family. They reject social responsibility, societal ethics. They reject morality. Okay, let's just pause and think about this. This is why Denis de Rougemont is saying this is dangerous. This is medieval literature is going astray from the ideal. Okay, think about if you reject marriage, family, societal responsibility, societal ethics, and morality, who's, who's affected by this? Okay? So I want to draw just this little, um, okay. Let's take a vote. <laughs> Everybody right now, think about marriage. Think about the state of marriage in the United States of America. Think of the marriages that you know, okay? Because that's going to help you also. But also think about marriage statistics you've been seeing, all this kind of stuff, okay? Think about divorce, all that kind of stuff, okay? Um, think about cohabitation. Remember, cohabitation was illegal in the 1930s. Did you know that? It was illegal in the 1930s, and now there are over 72 million people cohabitating, right? So, like, like I don't know, 50 years ago, the divorce, no, not 50 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, 30 years ago, the divorce rate was 50%, and then it creeped up to 85%, but now cohabitation has thrown everything off because we can't calculate these things. Okay. So just think about marriage <laughs> right now, which is not a happy thought. I mean, the state of marriage in our society. So I want you to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. So you're going to raise your hand when I get to the number you think it's at, okay? So 
10 means you, you raise your hand at 10, you think marriage is at the best ideal that it could be right now. That's where you think it is. And then one, it's at, at absolute worst, okay? And please feel free to look around the room to see how your peers are voting, okay? So raise your hand right now, you think marriage is at a 10 in America. Nine, eight, seven, six, not even a six, five, four, okay, we got a couple four, three, okay, more threes, twos, oh, more twos, one. Okay, okay, we have one idealist. That's good. We need people like that. Okay, so <laughs> now let's do the same thing with society. Okay, I want you to think about society as a whole. Think about American society. Think about politics, economics, entertainment, um, the general state of morals in society. Okay, so you're going to do the same thing. We're going to rate it on a scale of one to ten. Okay, ten, nine, eight, seven, six. Five, okay, one, six, five, four, okay, four, couple fours, three, okay, some threes, twos, okay, looks like we got the most twos, one, okay, one, one, idealist, thank you, okay. <laughs> now think about this. Doesn't this make sense? Actually, what you, the way you voted is incredibly consistent. Why? Because don't you think this is the way it is? That society can only be strong if family is strong, right? we could have done the same voting with family, but I think we kind of got it. But family can only be strong if marriage is strong. And marriage can only be strong if the individual person is strong. If the person is shaky, the marriage is going to be shaky, right? If one of the persons, if you marry a weak link, your marriage is going to be shaky, right? So if the marriage is shaky, the family's going to be shaky. The family's shaky, society is shaky. Do you see why this is so important? The formation of the moral imagination of the person? Right? Because it has this effect. It balances, right? This, that's why I drew it as an upside-down triangle. It balances upon the integrity of the person. So this is what Denis de Rougemont is speaking about. Now, it's fascinating, okay? What's, what's one of the things that, that's, breaking, that's breaking up society is the breakup of marriage, and what's, cause, what's causing the breakup of marriage, breakup of families, breakup of society, right? Is this, what's going on here? So, okay, I hate to admit this because, you know, it's a sad thing. But I'm probably not the only person in this room that has the same sadness in their life, is that my parents divorced. And so one of our, and, and you know, we teach, we teach sisters, we teach kids, um, students whose, whose parents are divorced. And so it's something we, we contend with in, in, the, in our organic postulate. And, you know, you also have to help, Kids deal with it, so um, to some extent. So one of my really good friends, whose parents also divorced, she said, "Sister, there's this really great book. It's a hard read, but it's really worth it. It's called Primal Loss." Okay, so I picked this book up, and it's actually really amazing. Primal Loss is a book that's written by adult children of divorced parents. Does that make sense? So the children who grew up in a divorced family, they, they're writing as adults how that has affected them and how it's affected their present marriages, okay? So I was reading this book, and there was this one guy, and he was like a young father. He had like two or three young children and a wife, and he was writing about his own childhood and how, you know, he kind of like used this image that it was like we were all on a plane. We were on the plane, on a family trip on this plane, and we're having conversation. We're talking about things. We fight a little bit, all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the plane ride, Dad gets out of the pilot seat, takes the only parachute, 
and opens up the door, messing up the cabin pressure for everybody, jumps out the window and says, good luck, y'all, and takes off, right? Because that's how he experienced his father's divorce. Does that make sense? This is why that whole idea that the love of Romeo and Juliet, right? It says to the world, be damned. I don't care about you. I care about me. Another really stark... So some of our sisters, we attended the World Meeting of Families, right? And so, of course, the World Meeting of Families, this was the one in Philadelphia in 2014, they're going to talk about divorce, right? Because that's a, it's an issue. So there was a priest giving a talk in one of the breakout sessions. And I don't know if his parents were divorced, but he was... He, and this is not intended to judge anyone, okay? But I, I think it's a stark image. He said, when, when parents divorce, it's like they put the cross down on the kitchen table. When parents divorce, right? Maybe this was your experience when your parents divorced, if your parents divorced. It's like the parents take the cross and they put it down on the kitchen table. And then the children have to pick it up. And that's what we see. That's what we see in our classroom, right? That's why it's strange. Like the children have to pick it up. So this is why, this is why, this is why good, bad literature is so dangerous, right? Because it encourages, and you can think about movies this way, right? There, there are probably some good, bad movies. Well, I don't know if you watch The Notebook, um, right? That it can encourage you, it can make you justify um, something wrong as if it were something right. Okay, so that's the digression. That's not, it's actually not the digression, but that's actually part of this point that I wanted to make in that little sliver of medieval literature. So now we're coming to, finally, modern literature, and Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, which I believe is a masterpiece. So Tolstoy published Anna Karenina um, in, in 1877, and he's Russian Orthodox. And what I want to tell you is that the structure of this novel, uh, the structure of the novel contains, in the very way that it's put together, right, an artistic vision that is deeply moral. I don't know if anyone tried to read Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is really metaphysical, but Tolstoy is really moral, more practical, easier to get your teeth into, right? Dostoevsky is more philosophical. So if you like that, you'd like Dostoevsky better than Tolstoy. Okay, so what's the logos? What's the ethos in Tolstoy's Anna Karenina? Well, this. His ethos, his logos, his proposal in that novel, in this novel, it, it looks big, but it's amazing. It's, it's going to go by really fast if you ever read it, okay? So, this is it. His logos and his ethos is this. Marriage is the foundation of society. Marriage is the foundation of society. And there's something at stake in marriage that's larger than ourselves. There's something at stake in marriage that is larger than ourselves. And that something is sacred. Isn't that beautiful? That something is sacred. There's something at stake in marriage that is larger than ourselves, and that something is sacred. So faithfulness in marriage upholds society and is absolutely necessary for a healthy society, right? And look what you are. You are the new generation, right? Your children are the new generation of the new generation. This ideal has to be rediscovered. Okay, so what's the, what's the logos, the structure of the novel? Okay, so the structure of the novel is actually really interesting, brilliant, actually. 
he almost called it a tale of two marriages because there are two marriages that he goes back and forth between in this book. Okay, so there are two protagonists because there are two stories. So there's two marriages that run parallel to each other. But actually, because Tolstoy is not just brilliant but a genius, these two stories they run parallel to each other. But this is what's so cool: two protagonists. One story is a comedy. Okay, so one so comedy not in the sense of funny haha, but in the classical sense of comedy, which is a movement upward, right? Like Dante's Divine Comedy. So the movement from Inferno to Purgatorio to Paradiso, right? That's why it's called the comedy because it's just a movement upward. So the first protagonist, the first couple, the first marriage is the marriage between Levin and Kitty. Okay, so Levin, he's a wealthy man. He could he could have chosen to be an aristocrat, but he prefers. He prefers the farm, believe it or not, right? He, he likes to have his hands in the earth. He likes to work side by side with the peasants. And he actually wants to help the peasants and to increase their, you know, he wants to be an advocate for the peasants, right? He thinks they're being mistreated, et cetera, et cetera. So Levin is this protagonist who seeks truth and virtue. Remember that about him. He seeks truth and virtue. And so what is Levin doing? He's trying to seek to, seek to know what, what's true, what's just. Now, he's aware of the discrepancies between the real and ideal, but he also tries to, to live by the moral laws of society. And for Levin, marriage is their symbol. Isn't that beautiful? Marriage is the symbol of the moral laws of society. And by trying to live according to those, he's going to find fulfillment. Okay, but this is what happens in the story of Levin. His, his story is a via negativa, right? He seems to have less and less. Because what happens at the, at the beginning of the novel is he's madly in love with this beautiful Princess Katerina, right? Kitty is her nickname. Um, and she's, she's beautiful. She's charming. She's lovely. She comes from a, from, from, a, from a wonderful family. And when he proposes, she refuses. And he's crushed, okay? So he's trying to seek truth and virtue, but he seems to have less and less. But what happens? His is actually this beautiful movement upward. He's seeking truth and virtue, and it seems like he's having less and less, but you know what happens in the end? In the end, his life is crowned with joy and faith. Right? It's gorgeous, right? His life is crowned with happiness, joy, and faith. Okay, so that's the comedy. Levin is that protagonist. Okay. The other story, so this is a comedy. The other story is a tragedy, right? This is a beautiful chiastic structure that we find in Tolstoy's novel. So Anna is the other protagonist. And Anna can take her, she actually imitates what we find in the book of the prophet Hosea, right? This image of the harlot Israel. She takes her place among the great suicides in literature. Sorry, that was a spoiler. Um, like Madame Bovary, right? So Anna, she is, she, is like, she is like that in ancient literature, right? The harlot Israel, the adulteress. And so Anna is the protagonist of that story. Now, in this marriage, remember, Levin was seeking truth and virtue. You know what Anna is seeking? Anna is seeking happiness, right? That seems innocent enough. She's seeking happiness. But it's going to be the cause of her downfall. We're going to have to talk about this in a little bit more detail. So hers is a tragic movement, right? The tragic movement is a movement downward. And what happens is Anna seems to have a movement upward, right? She thinks she has more and more, but she's actually having less and less. So why? Why is Anna a tragic figure? Because she's seeking self-fulfillment at all costs. 
and she's only concerned with her reality, right? Not the whole infrastructure of all the beautiful tapestry of relationships in which she's bound. She's only concerned about her reality. And so she's grasping at love. She's making a choice for self that seems to go upward, but in fact goes downward. And so here we see Tolstoy placing himself in that classical paradigm. He's showing us in Anna a woman who's in trouble. Why? Because she's in the erotic mode, right? She's not in the agopic mode. She's in the erotic mode. She's seeking. Okay, so who's Anna Karenina? Anna Karenina, she's a noble woman. She's a happy woman. She's beautiful. So at the beginning of the novel, she hasn't fallen yet, right? But you see her in her glory, right? You see her, you see her in the beauty that she possesses. So she's beautiful. Um, Louise Cowan calls her the queen of St. Petersburg society. And she's one who helps others, right? She's wise. So she's a trusted counselor. So for, for instance, at the beginning of the novel, there's a woman, Dolly, whose husband has committed adultery. Anna comes to visit her to try to encourage her to forgive her husband, right? To, um, you know, to try to hold their marriage together and, and to press forward, right? So Anna upholds marriage, morality, Christian ideals, and speech. And Anna is happily married to Karenin. Okay, this is actually really cool. That's how the Russians have their names, Anna Karenina. So her name literally means the Anna of Karenin, right? Because this is an idea that when a, when a man and a woman, this is John Paul II has the same idea. You should read the jeweler's shop if you haven't read it. But he has this idea that when a man and a woman get married, their destinies are bound together, right? That's why you have one name. You share one name because you have one destiny, one identity. It signifies the reality that the two have become one flesh. And this is the way the Russians do it, right? And it's beautiful because every time she's spoken to, she's called Anna Karenina, right? So she remembers who, what her identity is. So it's very fitting that Tolstoy chooses as a title of this novel, Anna Karenina, right? Because the tragedy will be her living against this identity. Okay, let's talk about Karenin. Who's Karenin? Karenin is a good man. He's a, he's a bureaucrat. He's a successful businessman. He has a piety for appearances that is appropriate, right? So it's healthy. So he follows societal norms. He follows moral norms. He would never commit adultery, right? You, you, it's very clear the way um, Tolstoy paints Karenin, that he is a moral, upright man. Now, they have a good marriage, and they're happy in their marriage, okay? This is where I have to warn you, never watch any Anna Karenina movies that are out there right now, okay? <laughs> All the Anna Karenina movies right now always try to justify Anna and say, oh, you know, Karenin is really cold and distant, and that's why it's okay for her to, she's not, she, her needs aren't being fulfilled in marriage, so it's okay for her, to, for her to have an adulterous relationship. Not true. That's not the way the marriage is in, uh, that Tolstoy paints. Okay, I'm going to read you a passage that proves that. So kind of get that in your head. So all Anna Karenina movies, none of them have, none of, none of, none of them have really successfully portrayed it correctly, okay? And it then it therefore messes up the whole point that Tolstoy is trying to make. Okay, so what happens in the novel, okay? In the novel, there's this shameless military man, very well named, Count Vronsky. Okay, Count Vronsky, he comes, and he's taken with her beauty. Right? He's crazy about it, right? So he said, and he doesn't have he doesn't have moral sense. Like manners extra super refined externally, right? Social manners, super refined. He's kind of like the opposite of Levin, right? Because Levin's like kind of clumsy and awkward, but he's morally upright. Vronsky on the outside he looks great, but 
but morally corrupt, okay? So Vronsky, even though she's married, starts pursuing her persistently, right? He's romantic, he's charming. And Anna, you know, she's taken aback, right? Um, and she resists at first because, you know, this is not proper. And she's happily married. She has an eight-year-old son. She's like, you know, what are you doing? This is crazy. Stop. You know, she begs him to desist, okay? But this is, this is how the devil works, right? Uh, she, he's persistent, right? So, so Vronsky keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. And then one day, um, Anna, you know, she's starting to like, there's something going on, right, in her mind, in her heart. She's starting to maybe give in to the temptation. And so one day, Anna meets, Anna's going off on some kind of business trip. Like, she's got to take care of some family business. And she actually secretly probably wants to get away from Vronsky, right? So I think she's, she's leaving town. She's going out of this train. But what happens on the train? Who's there? Vronsky is on the train. So I'm going to read to you the section um, where Vronsky and Anna meet on the train. And I want you to listen to um, how Tolstoy explains what's happening. So here's Anna speaking to Vronsky. I didn't, I didn't know you were going. And why are you going, she said, letting fall the hand which had grasped the doorpost. And irrepressible joy and animation shone in her face. Why am I going, he repeated, looking straight into her eyes. You know that I'm going to be where you are, he said. I cannot do otherwise. And at this very point, as though it had overcome all obstacles, the wind scattered the snow from the car roofs and began to flutter some sheet of iron it had torn off, while the low-pitched whistle of the engine set up a roar in front, dismal and lamenting. All the awesomeness of the blizzard now seemed still more splendid to her, he had uttered precisely what her soul yearned for, but which her reason dreaded. She made no answer, and in her face he beheld a struggle. Forgive me if what I have said displeases you, he said humbly. He had spoken so courteously, deferentially, yet so firmly, so obdurately, that for long she could find no answer. What you say is wrong, and I beg of you, if you are a good man, to forget what you have said, even as I shall forget it, she said at last. Not a single word of yours, nor a single gesture, shall I ever forget, nor could I forget. Right, here's Mr. Charmer, right? I mean, that's pretty good, right? <laughs> I've come to be where you are, right? But look at this, if you are a good man, What's the whole point? He's not a good man, right? That's why he's not going to forget. Okay, so what happens? She begins to give in, right? You see her already here giving in. She's giving in to this misleading insight. And what's the misleading insight? Brilliantly portrayed by Tolstoy. You shall be as God, right? If you look, if you look at every single temptation, that's at the heart of every single temptation. You will be as God, right? So she glimpses this in Vronsky's passion, this dream of being a goddess. And she begins seeking death. Okay, here's another thing from the classical paradigm, now that we're talking about it. In classical literature, 
the downfall of man and the downfall of woman come from two different things, okay? So if you look at classical literature, or actually also medieval literature and modern literature, hubris, remember studying hubris? It's that, over, that overweening pride that gets the better of you. So in man, what form does that pride take? It's the dream of some power, right? More power than is really possible. So remember Icarus? Right? Flying so close to the sun and then his wings melt and then he crashes into the sea, right? So that dream of power. Or think about Macbeth, right? To first be Thane of Cawdor and then to be king, etc., etc. So this is this dream of power for man. Okay, different for woman. Um, what's the dream for woman? It's not a dream of power. The temptation is you shall be as a goddess. So it's some dream of being the adored center of worship. That's woman's dream, right? Man dreams of power. Woman dreams of being the center of adoring worship. Okay, I think any woman who's really honest will say, okay, I think you've got, I think that's right. Okay, so it's really interesting. John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, you know, he says lust, lust takes different forms in man than in woman, okay? So in man, lust takes the form of lust, right? So women think of lust, you know, women think of men using pornography, we think, oh, that's gross, yuck, lust, okay? But John Paul II that says that in woman, lust takes a different form. And what is it? Sentimentality. Isn't that amazing, right? Sentimentality, he says, is a woman's way of lusting. What does that mean? It's this daydreaming, right? This fantasizing, right? Thinking about like this, like this dream, this dreamy ideal. And this is where good, bad literature comes in, right? This is what women use to lust. Okay, so this dream of being a goddess, right? This is this is the hubris that makes Anna tragic. Okay, now let's go to the temptation scene. So what happens? Anna has gone to this party, okay? Anna and Karenin, they go to this party, and I don't know why, they, they went separately, because sometimes that's fine, right? No problem. Everybody in society knows that they're married, okay? So if you're a married woman, the proper thing for you to do is to, um, to circulate around the room. So first you sit at this table, talk to these people, then you go to that standing group over there, and you talk to them, then you go to this table and sit over there, then you go to that standing group, and you go to this sitting group, but you rotate, okay? But what happens at this one particular party, and Karenin is also there, Anna's husband, Anna sits at this table with Vronsky the entire time. And guess what's happening? Everybody is noticing, right? They keep looking over and they're still there. Oh, they're, they're the only two at that table. They're still there, right? And so this happens. And so Karenin leaves, and then Anna's going to come home later. And Karenin is really disturbed, right? Because this is the breaking of a societal norm. So Karenin stays up. To, to confront Anna about this, you know, because everyone's talking and this isn't good for us, this isn't good for our son, this isn't good for you, what's going on, okay? So now I'm going to read to you what happens when Anna speaks to Karenin. And I want you to listen for the devil. Right, because Tolstoy's very subtle. He's never going to say the devil's there outright. Okay. Anna came in with her head bent, where right? she's coming into her house, Playing with the tassels of her hood, her face was glowing with a vivid glow. But this glow was not one of joyousness. It recalled the fearful glow of a conflagration in the midst of a dark night. On seeing her husband, Anna raised her head and smiled as though she had just waked up. 
You're not in bed. What a miracle, she said, throwing off her hood. And without stopping, she went on into the dressing room. It's late, Alexei Alexandrovich, she said from behind the door. Anna, I must have a talk with you. With me, she said wonderingly. She came out from the door and looked at him. Why, what is it? What about, she asked, sitting down. Well, let's talk then if it's so necessary, but it would be better to go to sleep. Anna was saying whatever came to her tongue and marveled hearing herself at her own capacity for lying. How simple and natural were her words and how likely that she was simply sleepy. She felt herself clad in an impenetrable armor of falsehood. She felt that some unseen force had come to her aid and was supporting her. Anna, I must warn you, he began. Warn me, she said, of what? She looked at him so simply, so brightly, that anyone who did not know her as her husband knew her could not have noticed anything unnatural, either in the sound or sense of her words. But to him, knowing her, knowing that whenever he went to bed five minutes later than usual, she noticed it and asked him the reason. To him, knowing that every joy, every pleasure and pain that she felt, she communicated to him at once. To him, it meant a great deal to see that now she did not care to notice his state of mind, that she did not care to say a word about herself. See, this is that whole, this is that whole idea, right? You see, they had this intimate relationship. Every pain, every pleasure, every joy, she shared it with him. Right? She always shared the state of mind, so you can see that they had this beautiful, intimate relationship. Okay? He saw that now, the inmost recesses of her soul that had hitherto lain open before him were now closed against him. More than that, he saw from her tone that she was not even perturbed at that, but seemed to be saying straightforward to, straightforwardly to him, yes, it is closed now, which is as it should be, and will be so in the future. Now, he experienced a feeling such as a man might have who, returning home, finds his own house locked up. Right, so this is that wall, right? That's what we always have to do with our relationships. Before we sin, we put up a wall, right? And this is exactly what Anna is doing. Okay, so shortly after the scene, what happens? The adulterous relationship begins between Anna and Vronsky. And so, oh, Tolstoy is going to show us what becomes of Anna through this adulterous affair. So one of the most famous scenes in all of Anna Karenina is this horse race scene, okay? So what's this horse racing? So this is kind of like for them, it's kind of like football for us, okay? So horse racing. So Vronsky, military man, he's like a famous horse racer. He has a beloved majestic racehorse, white horse, called Frufru, okay? So Frufru is this great white horse. So Vronsky is... Um, He's, he's the promised guy. He's supposed to win this race. And um, this, everyone's up in the stands, okay? So they're up in the stands, and they're, um, they're watching the horse race, which is happening out here, okay? Or actually, maybe you guys can be in the stands, and the horse race will be up here, okay? So you guys are watching, and you can see, like, the whole field of what's going to happen. So there's obstacles. They've got to run all this kind of stuff, okay? So Vronsky is, is getting there. They're in the starting area, and he has this, like, rival that he absolutely hates that he definitely wants to beat. Okay, this one particular rival. So they're off, okay? So they go off and they start racing, racing, racing. Fru-Fru, because she's so gorgeous and strong, she clears the first um, hurdle so beautifully, right? Like kind of like, 
cheers, okay? So Fru-Fru is up in the air, and then they're about to land, okay, on the other side. And Vronsky's so caught up in, yes, I'm going to win this, that he makes a fatal riding error, okay? Why does Tolstoy's having him make a fatal riding error to show that there's this disconnect, lack of integrity, right? Body and spirit are not connected. Morality and outward show are not connected. Okay, so what happens? Vronsky's about to land on the other side. As he lands on Fru-Fru's back, he pulls the reins at the same time. Those of you who know about horse racing, what has he just done? He's broken the horse's neck. Okay, what happens? As soon as Fru-Fru's legs hit the ground because her, her back is broken, she falls to the ground. Okay, so his Fru-Fru is writhing in pain on the ground, okay? And he's saying, get up, get up! And then the rival passes by and makes some, makes some kind of comment, right? And so Vronsky's so upset, get up, get up! Fru-Fru cannot get up because he has broken her back. So what does Vronsky do? He kicks her, right? This show, is, this, is this not, is this is an image, right, that burns itself into your imagination. What kind of man is this? that he kicks the majestic horse that he has destroyed. Okay, but there's something else going on here. And you probably have picked it up. Who is this horse a symbol of? Anna, right? Anna is the beautiful, majestic, spirited horse that Vronsky has ruined because she entrusted herself. Okay, now, right, this is, this is that ethos, right, this is the pathos, right, you're moved, right, we have this visceral repulsion now for Vronsky. Okay, meanwhile, what's happening in the stands, right, so Anna is going hysterical in the stands because she doesn't know where people can die in these things, right, so it's like the, the horse fallen her, is he, is he okay, so she's freaking out in the stands, right, and Karenin is trying to calm her, you know, this is inappropriate, you need to get hold of yourself. So he brings her to the carriage, right? He escorts her so that she can go home. And then she, you know, he's putting her in the carriage, and Anna is so upset. She looks at Karenin and she says, I love him. I am his mistress. Okay, so she confesses that she's been having this adulterous affair with him. So from that point forward, Karenin, the socially correct and morally correct thing to do is to separate. So Karenin separates from Anna formally. And basically what has then happened is that Anna has forsaken not only Karenin, she's abandoned her eight-year-old son, Seriosha, right? Who she's, you know, she professes all this love for Seriosha, right? She, she says, I love you so devotedly. But in her actions, she is saying to her son, be damned, right? I don't, I don't love anybody. I don't love you. I only love me, Right? This is the forsaking of relationships that the Nidhi Rujman was speaking about. Right? This is that seeking death. Anna is seeking death. And so what happens is Anna and Vronsky, they move in together into this love nest, and Vronsky is bored. Why? He loves Anna, but man needs a work. Right? This is what's beautiful about Tolstoy's writing. He's so true to the masculine character as well as to the feminine character. And so we kind of have this sense of loathing, right? that pathos um, toward Vronsky. So beautiful, because you see the opposite um, that he paints in Levin, okay? So you've got this beautiful Levin. Remember, Levin is a man of integrity, right? He's, um, so there's a scene where Levin, 
Well, so Levin at this point is courting Kitty, right? And he wants to he wants to impress her. Okay, and so um, he used to be remember he's socially awkward, but he used to be the skating champion in his village. Okay, and so um, so Levin there's this like there there's like these steps. Okay, so so they've been skating, they've been skating, and so Kitty is like her cheeks are all flushed and rosy, and she's like um, she's like over here somewhere. Okay, she's over here, and she's um, she's got her muffs on, and she's like just taking a break. And her, like the, her beautiful blonde hair and her blue eyes, they're shining, they're listening in the sunlight, right? And so Levin is looking at her, and she's like looking at him, and, and there's this new trick that the young guys are trying, okay? But Levin's not a young guy anymore, okay? So many years ago that he was a skating champion. And if you jump down these steps, right? You skip on one foot down these steps on your ice skates, and then you do this like twirl thing, and then you squeeze them, okay? It's complicated, right? And Levin's about to try it. And his friend is right there. He's like, don't do it. You need to practice. You don't do that without practicing. But Levin has already taken off, right? So he jumps down the step, and he like, loses his balance just for a second. He touches the ground, and then he does the flip, the twirl thing, and he goes, he goes, and he goes around like this. And he's going around the ice. He looks at Kitty. And she's laughing. She's laughing. She's delighted. OK, now why is this such a gorgeous scene? like any guy who's gone out on a date and you say a joke or you say something funny and the girl you're dating starts to laugh, right? You're just filled with this great sense of satisfaction. Why? Because you have this sense that you can provide for her, right? That you can make her happy. And that's exactly what we see in Levin at this moment, right? He gets this glimpse that I can make Kitty happy. And in fact, that's what you're going to see. That he does make Kitty happy, right? That there's this there's going to be like some, and it's so beautiful too. Like if you're thinking about getting married, the way he portrays the um, the kind of like marital strife, it's so beautiful and it's very true to the feminine and the masculine spirit. Um, this love between Kitty and Levin when they're first married and the struggles that they go through, it's really beautiful. Um, but what I love about the way he portrays Levin is the way he portrays Levin is he's a man, like he's got his hands in the soil. He's touching the bark of pine trees. You know, he's working with the scythe and he's sweating. Like, he's a man immersed in love with reality as God has created it. And Tolstoy shows that by showing us Levin's closeness to the created world, his closeness to nature. It's so, 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 so gorgeous. Okay. So, um, let's go back to Vronsky. So you see that this is that Levin and Kitty, their love, because they seek truth and virtue, will be crowned with happiness, joy, and faith. But how does um, Vronsky end the novel? He ends the novel. Again, this is another brilliant turn by Tolstoy. Uh, with a toothache. Vronsky ends the novel with a toothache, right? Why is that? Because he, he looks like a hero, but he's not a hero. Uh, and there's something here in the toothache that shows us this indignity, right? This emptiness, this weakness, this inactivity. How does Anna end the novel? Oh, I'm sorry, I already told you. She commits suicide. And she commits suicide by throwing herself in front of a train. And Vronsky's mother, I think she's got a lot of nerve to say this because she raised Vronsky. Vronsky's mother says her life, sorry, her death was as vulgar as her life, right? So how... What then, what conclusion can we draw? I'd like to draw with you this. I'd like to end the talk with this conclusion drawn for us by Louise Callan. She says, 
in her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness. In her turning away from those inviolable, unwritten laws to finding happiness, Anna instead finds absolute nothingness. And so that's what an adulteress can teach us about happiness. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Mary, Queen of Families, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.